what we believe we believe. You want to be a Christian. You want to live the Christian life. But you've never learned how to live the Christian life. You are listening to Telly's Talk, a podcast on being complete in Christ, hosted by Buzzsprout. We are talking about miracles on today's episode. Do miracles really happen? And if so, do they violate the laws of nature? What is the true purpose of miracles and why are they recorded in the Bible? Have you ever experienced a miracle in your life? How did people respond when you shared it? Have you shared it? Join us now as Wendell talks about miracles. Hello and welcome to Tellius Talk. I'm glad you've chosen to join us today. Our topic on today's episode is miracles. Miracle oil, miracle water, miracle herbs, miracle prayers, miracle men, and miraculous revelation. Apparently, people find this word miracle tough to define. Or, it has very little practical value. Are miracles the revelation of divine nature? Unexplained magic? Or, can all miracles be explained through science? John Frame, professor of theology at Westminster Theological Seminary, says, A miracle is a less common kind of God's activity in which he arouses people's awe and wonder and bears witness to himself. I think that's a fairly decent definition. But do miracles still happen today? And what should our response be to the stories that we hear about miracles? Are miracles just a joke? Are miracles just stories that unintelligent people tell? Why are miracles tied to the biblical narrative? The way that we understand miracles is very often based on how we were taught to relate to them spiritually. For Christians, that means going back to the Bible and examining the treatment of miracles by its writers. If you don't include the miracle of creation, the very first miracle that I can think of in the Bible is when Sarah became pregnant at an old age. In this miracle, we also see her respond with immediate disbelief. So often, the miracles that we hear about are met with measured disbelief as well. Why is that? The question that we have to ask ourselves is, do miracles violate the laws of nature? Timothy Pritchard, a lecturer in the linguistics department at University College London, says that accounts of miracles tend to be phrased in terms of God's act, not in terms of laws of nature. Do all events, including miracles, have a purely natural explanation? Some, like philosopher Alistair McKinnon, have theorized that if we can view miracles as no longer a violation of any law of nature, then they are merely an indication that we need to rewrite those laws in order to take this actual event into account. Either the law of nature was not a law at all, or miracles are not a violation of the law. But to maintain the truth of natural laws, would we be forced to deny the possibility of supernatural force? In his paper on miracles and violations, Ian Walker, professor at Dulwich College, London, says, The idea of miracles can be explained only by reference to supernatural forces rather than to what is or is not logically inconsistent with the laws of nature. Maybe miracles happen peripherally to the laws of nature. 
The changing of water into wine requires a clear manipulation at the atomic level, something we can attempt to explain in a scientific sense, but an act which requires a powerful agent to perform, such as a supernatural manipulation. This violent interruption of the natural order is conceptually disturbing, and if we attribute it to a supernatural act, we are labeled as close-minded. In his blistering insult of miracles, the 17th century philosopher Baruch Spinoza wrote, The common people suppose the existence of God is proven by nothing more clearly than from what they perceive as nature failing to follow its natural course. When speaking of miracles, Thomas Aquinas preferred to consider them as beyond rather than against nature. However, when we read what he wrote in the Summa Contra Gentiles 3, 103, Aquinas introduces several grades of miracles, the highest of these as something done by God, which nature could never do. The modern Jewish interpretation of miracles lies at the feet of Maimonides, one of the greatest Jewish thinkers of all time. As a student of Aristotelian thought, he argued against miracles in this way. We believe that the divine will ordained everything at creation and that all things at all times are regulated by the laws of nature and run their natural course in accordance with what Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 1.9. As it was so, it will ever be. As it was made, so it continues, and there is nothing new under the sun. This occasioned the sages to say that all miracles which deviate from the natural course of events, whether they have already occurred or according to promise, are to take place in the future, were foreordained by the divine will during the six days of creation, nature being then so constituted that those miracles which were to happen really did afterward take place. Then, when such an occurrence happens, at its proper time, it may have been regarded as an absolute innovation, whereas in reality, it was not. We don't need to try too hard to understand that Maimonides had no place for the necessity of or need for miracles. To him, as in our society today, a satisfactory and full explanation of miracles could be found in science. They were nothing more than the events within a deterministic cosmos. But as Maimonides grew older, his faith in science to explain everything he experienced waned, which led to doubts in his dismissal of miracles outright. In the mind of a Jew in antiquity, the notion of anything violating the laws of nature or creator God would have stretched credulity. There were events in Jewish history and features of the cosmos that fell dead when completely dependent on an explanatory system like science. To say as we do that miracles are events which violate the laws of nature presents another problem. Although this seems to be a matter of simple intuition, the Hebrew word for miracle means banner or sign, and this suggests that miracles are something that God does to make a statement, or change the course of human affairs. Of course, we must ask ourselves, how did Jesus view miracles? Quite simply. Jesus had a kingdom world view. From a philosophical perspective, we could say that his worldview reflected both theory and methodology particular to this kingdom worldview. He saw the world from the perspective of heaven. This is why we refer to Jesus' miracles as paradigm miracles. 
In Matthew 17.20 we read, For truly I say to you, If you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. In this passage of scripture, Jesus demonstrates kingdom thinking to his disciples, and the methodology of paradigm miracles. When we read through the miracles of Jesus, we find a recurring theme in many of them. He performed miracles in ways that made his actions questionable. This cannot be a surprise when we approach them from the paradigm of his heavenly kingship. Here's a very quick overview of the majority of Christ's miracles. He healed the demon-possessed. We read of Legion in Mark 1, 23-28, and the two men in Matthew 8, 28-34, the mute man, Matthew 9, the Canaanite woman's daughter, Matthew 15, or the boy with seizures, Matthew 17, 14-21. Jesus healed Gentiles. We read about the centurion's servant in Matthew 8, verses 5-13. Jesus cured those with incurable diseases. Mark talks about a leper in his first chapter. Luke talks about a woman with blood disorders in his chapter 8 and in chapter 17, the 10 lepers. Jesus raised the dead, not only the widow's son in Luke 7, but the synagogue ruler's daughter in Matthew 9, Lazarus in John 11, and he raised himself, which we read in Luke 24, verses 5 to 8. Jesus worked on the Sabbath. In John 5, verses 1 to 9, we read about the invalid at the Bethesda pool. Matthew 12, verses 10 to 13, talk about the man with the withered hand. The crippled woman is talked about in Luke 13. Luke 14 talks about the man with dropsy. Jesus favored the poor. John 9 talks about the blind beggar. And Matthew 20 talks about two blind men. Jesus challenged religious thought. Think about the sinful paralytic in Matthew 9, verses 1 to 8. And Jesus controlled the weather, Matthew eight twenty three to 27 Do you see why his miracles would have been questioned so heavily? He was in contact with those who were possessed, Gentile, diseased, dead, blasphemous, heretical, and poor. On top of that, he controlled the weather, multiplied food, and changed water into wine. It's ridiculous, and it was then, and it is now. Do you hear... The miracles of Jesus are questioned so heavenly because they seem so ridiculous. You cannot read through all the recorded miracles of Jesus and not see how he challenged scientific, religious, cultural, and common understanding. Ultimately, he brought comfort to those who believed and panic to those who didn't. This is something which has not changed in the least when we put it in today's context. Fundamentally, what is the implied narrative in each miracle that we read? Every single miracle is like a huge flashing billboard that says, this required God to make it happen. If we can remove God from the miracles, then our ability to explain them becomes pedantic. This is because miracles transcend the personal and physical narrative, and they always point to a first cause, or the infinite. They always point to God. Miracles are not about us. They are always about God, the author and perfecter of life, caused the story we are trying to tell. The problem we run into with the whole subjective truth narrative is that it attempts to create cohesion through confusion. God has to be the commonality in everything, including miracles, and we need to realize that this must be our common assumption. If not, what is the alternative? Do we deny God and say there is no commonality?
This type of statement forces us to contemplate the meaningless of reality. And if reality is meaningless, what is our own rationality built on? Now I realize that I have rabbit trailed a bit here, but the idea of miracles and the relation to our faith forces us to ask the question, why, in a different way. Okay, so let's reject a Christian worldview for a second. Let's reject all monotheistic understanding for a second. And where does that get us? We certainly cannot claim a coherent view of reality. And maybe we turn to naturalism with its unified account, but it rejects metaphysical assumptions. But then we end up with post-modernity or Gnosticism, and ultimately we start encouraging mythology and superstition. And the funny thing then is that those who reject Christianity condemn us because we're the ones who are supposed to be purveyors of mythology and superstition. But to hold that view runs counter to the salvation history, which runs throughout every line and every word in Scripture. James Emery White, author, pastor, and president of Serious Times Ministry, wrote, One of the most pervasive fundamental convictions of contemporary American society is that all roads lead to God, and to say that one way is right and the other way is wrong is narrow-minded, bigoted, and prejudicial. What is true for you is true for you, and what's true for me is true for me. Searching for God is like climbing a mountain, and since everyone knows there's not just one way to climb a mountain, mountains are too big for that, each person can choose from a number of paths. All the ideas about God contained in the various religions of the world are just different ways up the mountain. In fact, though different religions have different names for God, the names all refer to the same God. Is it true that a lot of roads lead to heaven? Which means we don't have to worry about what road we're on? Is it true that no person, no religion, no group, no book has a handle on the truth? Is it true that all religions are basically the same and all religious leaders are essentially of one mind, so that ultimately all spiritual pursuits lead to the same place? If so, people don't need to look for spiritual truth, they just need to decide on a spiritual preference. If you embrace the idea that multiple paths lead to God, and you turn out to be wrong, the consequences are enormous. In Exodus 15.11 we read, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, terrible in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Signs and wonders, the miracles of God, were how the Old Testament writers separated Yahweh from the pagan gods around them. Anselm Ramelow has written, When it comes to miracles, however... There are no such scientific explanations available because we are dealing with spiritual agents. Only narratives are available. These narratives will tell us things that would not occur in a physicalist account. For example, someone's prayer for healing may provide an important explanatory context for the miracle. To go back to Maimonides for a second, we see that as he grew older, so did his disbelief in the immutability of science and Maimonides slowly became receptive to the possibility of miracles. Miracles really are nothing other than the events or features that, while not being totally at odds with science, cannot be fully accounted for in any theory. Is the experience of miracles, then, just a small revealing light to the blind, the removal of scales from the eyes of the doubter, are miracles an infinitesimal revelation of God into our lives? 
Have you ever had someone relate a miraculous story to you? Was your first response to paint it as a lie or as the truth? Lies are stories which are built completely on nothing but our own misplaced desire. We want to twist the truth into something it is not. But it forces us then to create more and more stories to support the lie. Our memories need to be almost superhuman to keep the web of stories coherent, which then causes us to become worried and anxious. The truth doesn't do this, because it lives completely outside of our minds. Our memories are part of truth structure, which does not need to be created, fed, or sustained. Lies not only stretch reality, but they implode into themselves, tearing the fabric of reality. Lying does not allow for a coherent intentionality. It is only the liar who need be worried. This is what the religious leaders of Jesus' day were hoping for. They were waiting for what they perceived to be very obvious lies and misleading scriptural perversion on the part of Jesus. In their anger, they tried to at least three times kill Jesus. And there are many accounts of the trials where Jesus was ultimately tried for his crimes. But his trial before the Sanhedrin, recorded in all four Gospels, claimed that he was tried before Caiaphas and Annas. Then he was sent to be tried by Pilate and Herod Antipas. Each one of them tried to suss out a lie. It was even Pilate who asked Jesus what is truth. But it was the miracles they abhorred, the evidence that he might be who he said he was, which was God. And yet we read in John 3 verse 2 that Nicodemus recognized who Jesus was when he said, No one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. This leads me to ask the question, how were miracles treated by the biblical writers? Very simply, miracles accomplished a purpose. They prove God exists and is the true God, such as we see in the plagues of Egypt, Elijah on Mount Carmel, or Daniel in the lion's den. Or... Miracles prove the inspiration of God through the prophets or the biblical writers themselves. Or, as we see in the miracles of Jesus, they prove his divinity. Wayne Grudem wrote in his book on systematic theology, In the early church, the apostles and others who preached the gospel performed miracles that amazed people and gave confirmation of the gospel that was being preached. Even in churches where no apostles were present, miracles occurred. For example, Paul, in writing to several churches in the region of Galatia, assumes this when he asks, Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Similarly, he mentions in the church of Corinth workers of miracles and names the working of miracles as a gift distributed by the Holy Spirit. These last two verses are especially significant because 1 Corinthians 12 verses 4 to 31 is not discussing a specific situation at Corinth, but the nature of the church in general, as the body of Christ with many members, yet one body. Biblical writers record miracles as fact since they were witnessed and undeniable. Good examples would be the raising of Lazarus from the dead or restoring sight to the blind. Miracles were witnessed in scripture by those who knew the person who received the miracle, as they could attest to the validity of the claim. Oftentimes, the biblical writers would also record that the miracles were witnessed by unbelievers or false teachers. 
Now I have to mention the fire called down by Elijah on the prophets of Baal. This miracle would have had a profound effect on all those in attendance. It was a very deliberate and obvious sign of the power and presence of God. Another interesting thing we discover in the biblical writing is that miracles were instantaneous. They did not develop over time, but happened at a very specific time for a specific person or event. Miracles are always recorded as being successful, complete, and perfect. There was no relapse or a requirement of further care. Now this brings us very naturally to the faith healers that we have selling their fallacies among the most gullible. They prey on emotion and sow deceit to the desperate and broken. There is no intention by these charlatans to mimic the outline of scriptural miracles. What purpose do they hope to accomplish? Proving the existence of God or instant gratification? Do we see Benny Hinn surrounding himself with unbelievers in order to show them the power of God? Or is he surrounded by these pitiful yes-men who encourage his blatant apostasy? Is God glorified or objectified? Is he idolized or exalted? Before we get to the end of this podcast, I do want to mention one last thing. There is a tradition of canonization where some people are granted sainthood based on miracles they may have performed. First of all, I don't believe that any one person performs miracles in and of themselves. All miracles are supernatural acts of God and the working of God through the intercession of his saints. And that brings me to the second point. The scriptures refer to all believers as saints. This means that we may all intercede, but as Jesus said, we must have the faith of a mustard seed in order to move the mountains. Thirdly, miracles all glorify God. And if we are praying for miracles with selfish intentions, we should not expect them to happen. According to Wayne Grudem, one purpose of miracles is certainly to authenticate the message of the gospel. This was evident in Jesus' own ministry as people like Nicodemus acknowledged, We know you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. It was also evident as the gospel was proclaimed by those who heard Jesus, for as they preached, God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his own will. Hebrews 2 verse 4. Do we experience miracles today? I believe we do. As I have talked to people during my prep for this podcast, I have heard many people recount miracles in their own lives or those that they know. But every time that I hear about a miracle, it is shared in hushed tones. And not unlike Sarah we find these stories as being beyond belief, and the telling of them as lacking credulity. However, when I push those who tell the stories, they tell me about how God was revealed. I don't hear about prosperity or fame. I hear about how a loved one saw God for the first time and their life was changed. And it is then that I know we still do live in an age of miracles. A gospel to the lost and a healing hand to those in pain, from a God who truly loves and wants his presence known. Let us pray. Father God, we live in a time of doubt. We live in a time where our faith is in science and not on you. I pray that we look for and hear about the miracles where you are showing yourself to people, healing them and giving them the strength to tell others about who you are. We pray that you would give us your hand of blessing 
that we would keep our eyes open to your miracles. We pray this in your name. Amen. Next month, we will be looking back at 2022. Some of the highs, some of the lows, and what we expect to talk about in the next year. I hope you join us. I'm looking forward to it, and I hope you are too. Thank you for joining us for today's episode. Next month, Telly's Talk will be wrapping up the year with a look back at all that has happened in the last 12 months. Don't forget to visit our Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube pages. Have you got your copy of our book, Six Good Questions, yet? It is available through Amazon right now. It would make a great stocking stuffer. As always, it would be good to hear from you. Send us an email at telliestalk at gmail.com. Keep us in your prayers as we prepare our podcast every month. We look forward to sharing with you again. Do we believe what we believe we believe? <laughs>